Carry confidence with you. L3 Harris provides ultra-reliable portables and mobiles that are designed by and for those on the front lines. Learn more at www.l3harris.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Statistically, school shootings are not a regular occurrence, but they are alarming tragedies that we all need to prevent. Is your agency or your schools prepared for the possibility of such a devastating event? Are your agency leaders prepared to act? Our guest today has developed the SMART program in Southern California. SMART stands for School Mobile Assistance Resource Assessment Team. SMART was formed in July 2001 to serve schools in the Sheriff's Department patrol areas of Orange County. It is a multidiscipline threat assessment team that responds to incidents related to violence, threats of violence, possession and or use of weapons, unstable behaviors, suicidal actions, or tendencies that pose a threat to others at K through 12 schools. The team includes a mental health clinician to take part in the assessments and connect those students who need it with the appropriate resources. Welcome today, our guest, Sheriff Don Barnes. He was elected the 13th Sheriff Coordinator for Orange County in November 2018. He began his law enforcement career with the Orange County Sheriff's Department in 1989. Sheriff Barnes leads a department of approximately 4,000 employees. The men and women of the Sheriff's Department provide a patrol service for approximately 800,000 residents, operate one of the nation's largest county jail systems, manage the Orange County Crime Lab, conduct criminal investigations, and provide training services at the Orange County Sheriff's Regional Training Academy. During his tenure as sheriff, he has focused on initiatives aimed at fighting crime, enhancing school safety, implementing programs in the jail to reduce recidivism, and increasing efforts to stop trafficking of deadly narcotics. Welcome to Policing Matters, Orange County, California Sheriff Don Barnes. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's great looking over uh, what what I've seen on the SMART assessment team. It's great um, to have these uh, threat assessments. Tell us about how SMART in particular works. So SMART is one of two programs that were funded through the California Juvenile Justice Crime Prevention Act uh, back in 2000. We started this program, really it was response to Columbine and some of the lessons learned post-Columbine about early, uh, about identifying and implementing strategies to uh, keep school safe, obviously, but divert young adults into places where they can get some treatment. So that's one of two programs. We'll cover the other program a little bit later called Pride, and I know we'll segue into that because they are very much interconnected. Uh, two decades, we've had um, huge outcomes in regards to this program when we started, uh, started the program. Um, if I were to tell you that this, these, uh, our team, a deputy is an investigator, a sergeant, and also a clinician, and working with our district attorney's office with the vertical deputy district attorney to look at these cases and how they are brought forth, if there is a criminal element to those. We have intervened throughout the years, uh, taking bomb-making material out of kids' rooms, guns, uh, th uh, 
plans to do some very nasty things on school campuses that has been tremendously uh, beneficial to keeping our schools safe. On top of that, we have strategies to divert them. We'll cover the pride program a little bit later, I believe, into uh, uh, services to get them back in a good place if it's not a serious uh, threat that was made throughout that. It was so successful that we were recently contacted by uh, the state uh, in funding opportunities to ask us to expand that. And rather than expand it in my sheriff's service areas that we have, we collaborated with other agencies in North Orange County and built out a North County uh, Municipal Police Agency Sheriff Department um, co-responder model, if you will, to school campuses and other municipal cities that aren't within my patrol area, but working with them, we've been able to replicate this, uh, this program going forward. It's always been our goal to be able to obviously evaluate, assess individuals, and then effectively resolve these matters in ways that are least intrusive. And that's really the goal of the juvenile justice system, at least how it exists here in Orange County. As far as the schools go, they have been tremendously uh, receptive to it. They see the benefit. Uh, we didn't have to you know, knock down hurdles uh, to do that. And they've seen the positive outcomes, which has really been built on a trusting relationship with our school administrators and faculty on each of these campuses, which makes it really uh, beneficial when you have everybody pulling the rope the same direction to keep our school safe and to treat people who might be in crisis in a, in a respectful way to get them back in a good place, either psychologically or whatever's required, has been tremendously uh, successful. Yeah, and, and looking at your program, it's it's often difficult to assess prevention, right? How many incidents did we prevent as opposed to how many did we respond to? And your program's been running for quite a while now, and, and we have a large sample size of cases, not, not just sort of anecdotal. For the year 2021 to 2022 in the school year, the team has handled nearly 300 threat assessments and calls for service. The number represents a wide range of threats, many minor. It's a version. Is this a version of a red flag law for schools? It, it seems like SRO on steroids, if you will, and uh, you know, temper that with the idea that people, uh, parents, uh, school kids, uh, school administrators uh, might bristle at the thought of uh, their child being investigated for a behavior or a threat. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's a, a fair, uh, I think, assessment. I think especially the way that schools have been perceived the last several years. And um, I can tell you some of the things we prevented, I mentioned earlier. It's hard to argue against a school when you have an intervention at school not getting attacked or something bad that we knew that was on the horizon not happening. And we don't advertise those obviously because we wanna make sure that we just keep our schools safe, but we know that those things have been prevented. Uh, when you look at all these cases that are handled, and that's, that's a lot when you look at the, the severity of some of these cases and the outcomes that we have. Uh, but we have morphed over time. Uh, we have to change with the times and look at how these are brought forth. We've uh, brought in new strategies along the way that I'll cover in just a moment. One of those I think is kind of what you would call a red flag law, but a uh, little nuanced in how we've implemented it. But all these things are very, very effective. Most importantly, what we changed and we went to this as this model's progressing was began using the comprehensive school threat assessment guidelines to assess threats 
within the school community. It's a proven strategy. It's, it's defensible when you're looking at how you're evaluating these incidents that happen on school grounds. And for the most part, these, these threats are divided into two categories, uh, transient threats that are not serious. Um, there's no genuine intent to harm others. And those, are, those happen. It's the bulk probably of the threats. And then we have substantive or serious threats. These are behaviors that represent a serious school, um, school threat or risk of harm to others. And both of those uh, require significant training of our personnel, intervention strategies, crisis intervention training, how to, how to you know, de-escalate when you're working with some of these things. And how most importantly, I think most critically is having personnel that are specifically trained to deal with this young age population in ways that don't create other harms when you're intervening with them. So when you look at these, obviously uh, calls for service that are focused on either threats of a school shooting or threats of bomb threats, or they're made on social media platforms. Those are all, uh, that's something that falls within the cadre, if you will, of what this team does. To complement them, I have a cyber crimes unit, and I also have a fusion center in Orange County that can bring forth additional resources if there's a cyber threat or something like that to get open source information that would help identify an individual, bring forth uh, those, those two different categories of crimes. If it's deemed to be a transient threat, something that's not credible, but obviously something uh, of concern, those are, uh, the dispo of those cases are a little different. They're referred back to the school's administration for handling. And that can be also tied to our pride program that we'll talk in just a moment to bring forth necessary resources for that individual. Um, and our, I mentioned the relationship we have with our, with our school administration and faculty is phenomenal. They know what the goal is to get these kids in a better place and make sure it doesn't recur and also uh, as best as possible, restore some integrity of safety back into the campuses. If there is a criminal uh, issue that we will refer to our district attorney's office uh, in a vertical unit, they handle just these cases where you bring to them and we make sure that those are uh, addressed at the appropriate level. I mentioned the red flag kind of component that we have. Uh, back in 2019, we created a called Orange County OC STAT, which is OC School Threat Assessment Team. And we look at what happens oftentimes with students who are presenting uh, some risk or threatening harms or what it might be. It's not uncommon for them to be moved amongst the education system from either school to school or district to district without any of the new recipients of these students to know who they are, what risk they presented, and really be fully aware of the individual. And what OC STAT does is it enables through our fusion center in Orange County, the Orange County Intelligence Assessment Center, to put this information into a system. So if they go from one district to another, both districts, especially the one receiving them, is aware of the behavior of their prior school environment. So they're fully aware of somebody coming into their school district and what they might, what risk they might present when they come in. It's not a tracking system, it's an assessment system, make sure everybody knows uh, the risk or potential harms that may be presented if not adequately addressed when they move from district to district. And I think it's a pretty innovative tool that we've, we've implemented uh, in that environment. Yeah, well, you must be doing something right. Um, the I'm glad you brought up social media. You know, it's nuanced. Uh, 
and the you know our first amendment right to speak what's on our mind and it's sometimes it's a it's a really narrow margin between expressing oneself and making a threat and i think you'll agree that a lot of our active shooters uh, that we've seen there there is some precursor evidence out there oftentimes that we don't see until post event um, I'm just wondering when you get a case, when a case is brought to your attention, do you have a supervisor that's looking and strategizing where you're going to go there? Or do you have a 10th man uh, who would just step in at the last moment and look at it and, and make the call on, on where you go next? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, you know, philosophy. And I think what we have, uh, what we have been able to do with the, our smart strategy, if you will, the smart program, is when these when these risks come in or these reports of some risky behavior comes in uh, not being critical of anybody else but it would be or let's talk about what we did previously a deputy would respond they take a report uh, it may be followed up in a day or two and that's not timely when you look at how these risks present themselves so what we've been able to do is be immediate it's almost the you call we come it's like calling 911 for this team they respond and they are on site making their assessments with a clinician and evaluating what the risk might be. And if there's criminal violations of law based on California statutes, obviously, then those are, those are addressed um, to try to get, make sure we keep the school safe. Most importantly though, in our teaming with our schools that participate in this program, uh, we have a largely welcome presence. Um, it, it depends mostly on teachers and the personnel being aware of what those threats and warning signs are. So educating them as kind of that, you call it the 10th man, this is literally the 10th man or woman on-prem, on-premises that have their spidey sense, if you will, going on and looking for things that might be uh, warning signs. Uh, what you mentioned about, you know, the, the knowledge that's known, that's brought forth post-incident, that's never a good thing. And when we're trying to change that nomenclature from see something, say something, to know something, say something, because almost in every occurrence, there are tripwires or behaviors that people are made aware of and they don't act upon them. And that's really the best time to intervene. And that's what this model does, is tripwire behaviors, seeing something, having those that cadre of facilitators that report to us to have an intervention, if you will, an investigation and come to their school site. Today, we've uh, just on the, the uh, the comprehensive school threat assessment guidelines. Uh, we've trained 480 administrators and school site personnel who've received this training. So we're all on the same page on how we're evaluating the risk and what the intervention strategies should be. Yeah, that's great. And you know, I wrote an article a couple of years ago, maybe it was a year ago, on um, you mentioned Columbine at the beginning in, in the introduction and it was an anniversary of Columbine, and we don't name the the shooters, but uh, a young woman from, I believe she was 18, from Florida, uh, went online, talked about buying guns, and how do I get to Columbine, and can I take a gun on a plane, and I mean, all of the pre-indicators were there, and at some point, um, I guess we lost track, and she appeared in Denver, uh, nearby, purchased a gun, and uh, you know, was really close. Um, it sounds like you are uh, getting hold of those things at, at the earliest stage. Any criticism about um, taking early intervention or 
or or having a student come under scrutiny uh, any objections by school administrators or parents? No, I don't think there's any scrutiny. I think they just want to make sure that you are uh, obviously reasonable in your approach and cognizant of constitutional um, you know, uh, guidelines that we don't want to violate anybody's constitutional rights. But I think, and that's really the, the, you know, the balancing act that we are, that we are encountering in today's societies. How do you balance the Second Amendment rights to possess a firearm with the requirements or the necessity to keep our environment, our communities and particular schools safe? So um, when somebody puts themselves, you know, on the radar of a policing agency, I think that they, I think we have to be at a level of scrutiny and we have to have some due diligence and make sure we vet out what that might look like to either um, account for in a criminal investigation or discount it as a threat. And I think we have a pretty good system of doing that here, not being critical of anybody else in this environment or any of my peers in policing. Uh, but I'll be honest, if you look at what's happened the last several years, I mean, I don't have to wait. I don't think any of us have to wait two years for an after action report on any of these schools that have happened. And I'm not pointing to any one in particular, but we have a series of events on school campuses and they almost always tell us the same thing. Sure. Uh, disenfranchised white male on the radar of school administrators for behavior, behavioral health issues, access to firearms, school safety protocols easily defeated, some perceived grievance or injustice, oftentimes incel and voluntary celibate, all these, all these, you know, variables or factors, you can check every box almost every single time. And rather than focus on what we know about the individual, let's focus on preventative measures that we can put in place. Uh, we know processes that work uh, that I can allude to if you like, but just systems that have been put in place that we know uh, prevent the, the incident from happening in the first place. And I think we should focus more on the best practices that can be uh, part of the intervention, identification, and, and pre prevent these things from happening than you know, do the after action of the individual. I think we have a pretty good history of who these people are and how they act. And the programs need to change and how we prevent them in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, personally, I feel like it's coming together. Um, we've had Catherine Schweit from the FBI talk about her book, uh, Stop the Killing. And she says it's everything that you just mentioned. Uh, it's not any one thing, but it's often a, a combination. Um, smart. But I would even go so far as it's not only just those things, but all of those things are almost always known prior to the, uh, the, the bad actor taking some deliberate action. Uh, you look at all those things mentioned, those are all factors that are easily identifiable. And uh, if we get school administrators or faculty or teachers to look for those you know, tripwire events that say something's not right and have a mechanism reported with some intervention strategy to come out and look at it, that's really where I think we need to be because one of these, we don't need another Evaldi or another Parkland or another Columbine. There's been way too many of them. Mm -hmm. and I think we have to invest on the front side of this, the left of Bane environment to keep these things from happening. Absolutely. And it takes a special kind of law enforcement officer to be a school resource officer. How do you recruit or assign deputies to the SMART program? So th there are two different. So we have school resource officers uh, we have 16 high schools within our service jurisdiction, and those school resource officers 
also deal with the feeder schools, the middle schools that feed into their, their high school because it's, it's kind of a funnel system, if you will, and they'll have feeder schools. So I have 16 school resource officers. We, um, it's a highly sought after position. We're looking for the right personality, if you will, to be able to deal with, uh, with kids and be able to relate with kids. That doesn't mean they have to be the cool deputies on the campuses. They just have to be able to be communicative and, and create a trusting environment with the school campus. So that's, that's the probably the easy part. One other part of that we've did, and this is probably about 10 years old, every one of our school resource officers on the campus they serve uh, has a text a tip app, and that goes straight to that school resource officer's phone. So any, any uh, student on a campus can text a tip and it'll go right to the school resource officer. It could be something like, John has a gun in his locker, or there's narcotics being happening in, a, in the bathroom, or whatever that might be. It allows them to intervene appropriately. And again, it's all built on trust. Um, that trusting environment has to have that closure that brings back a positive outcome to create the safe school uh, atmosphere that we're hoping to accomplish. But I think that that's the key is picking the right SRO. And I think we have done that successfully for years and then add them in just as one more component to keep in the school safe and make sure they're well received. Yeah, I'd like to ask you uh, about the debriefing uh, part you mentioned, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Coverage that goes beyond the call of duty. L3 Harris XL series portables and mobiles are designed by and for frontliners who lay it on the line every day. LTE, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, GPS, and phone app-based devices expand your coverage and keep you connected in the most challenging situations. Schedule your demo today. Learn more at www.l3harris.com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Orange County Sheriff Don Barnes about the SMART program. Sheriff Barnes, uh, tell us about debriefing after an intervention. Uh, what levels do you take? Do you bring everybody in, multidisciplinary, school, parents, cops, or deputies only, rank only, the assessment team only? How's that work? That's a great question. If you look about, you know, obviously it's not just the, the response, it's the post-incident management or uh, that takes place as well. And I think that's probably the key. Uh, that's, that's really the linchpin on, on the success because just going out and taking a report and taking some action and uh, punting them into some other part of, of government is not, is not really enough. You have to have this triage environment and wraparound services that come with it. And that's what we've successfully implemented in Orange County for the last two decades. So the 180 threat assessments that we had in 2021, just last year, um, healthcare agency, and that's the clinician that's provided for this, provided 52 referrals uh, for students and their families. And I think that's part of that progression on where we started to obviously evaluate the individual and then decide who needs to go into some other form of, uh, of services. Once the threat has been assessed and we have, and the intervention is no longer required, the clinician can immediately provide mental health resources or links to other services that can be beneficial. And that can include the PRIDE program that we've re referenced several times, and we'll discuss that in a moment if, if we have time. Uh, but those services are really tailored to the individual, and it could be individualized counseling, drug and alcohol resources uh, or treatment, uh, after school programs tailored to the student's interests, family 
counseling, uh, parent and family support groups, uh, parent education courses. Sometimes the issues where we encounter are students making poor decisions, but the family or the parents need to have better, be better equipped. Uh, we have one program called the Parent Project, and I know that's not limited to just us, and that's in English and Spanish in our service area. So teaching or helping parents learn to be better parents and how they intervene with their, with their children and get them back at a good place and all those things. And that's just a, a small representation of the resources that we have available. And we try to make sure that whatever we do is tailored to each each individual, each student, each family to make sure that we equip them and put them in a place where they can recover from whatever brought us to their attention and, uh, and make sure that they're, they don't recidivate. What I love, love most about this, I think this still holds true, but when you're investing in kids programs, every dollar that we invest in kids intervention strategies and programs uh, saves $7 in the adult system later on. So it's really an investment and taxpayer dollars in a way that makes those dollars available in other parts of our programs. Uh, so we don't have to unnecessarily spend those dollars incarcerating, uh, prosecuting, uh, housing uh, these young kids if they transition into criminality as adults, which yeah. I think is a huge win for us. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a lot of times when we do assess uh, problems and then apply services, sometimes they're check the box kind of services. Your sound really wrap around um, and preventative in nature. You also have uh, the Pride program. Uh, you team up with Pepperdine University and uh, it's evidence-based. Tell us about Pride. Sure, so same, this came in about the same time we started our uh, SMART team, uh, about 2000, 2001. Um, it is it's really an off-ramping program is the best way that I could describe it. PRIDE stands for Pepperdine Resource Youth Diversion and Education. It's a prevention intervention counseling program for at-risk youth and their families uh, as an inclusion part of that. It's done in collaboration, as you mentioned, with Pepperdine University. And these are clinicians uh, who work within the Sheriff's Department or one of our stations. And it's mostly geared towards first time offenders or uh, young adults, kids that are brought to our attention. There's three different ways that they can come to us. Uh, families, it's known, our program's known within the communities we serve. So families can come to us and, um, and bring their child and, and talk about the issues they're having. It could be the result of a law enforcement contact within our patrol environment or on one of our school campuses to our SMART team that would refer them over to the PRIDE program or um, our school administrators or faculty can directly refer them to us without having a law enforcement intervention at all. So those are really the three ways that they come into this program. Um, I'm very proud of the program and some of the outcomes that we've had. Uh, the recidivism rate for our participants in Pride is 9% after 12 months uh, for completion, 6% within six months. Uh, it's a very low recidivism rate. When you look at how some of these young adults, kids are making some poor life choices to get them back into a system of accountability that will help prevent them from doing that, uh, continuing whatever bad decisions they're making that would result in bringing them to the, you know, into our criminal justice system, which we try not to do. Uh, and just in the last year, for the last academic year, Pride 
had 165 referrals of the 165 referrals, 156 juveniles successfully completed the diversion program and did not enter the juvenile justice system, which I think is a huge positive outcome and how we have uh, been able to intervene successfully. Mm -hmm. And with with all the you know talk about reforming juvenile justice, you mentioned um, that the Office of Juvenile Justice Programs uh, helped get this started. Um, is there any uh, talk about making this? I mean, it's it's hard to cookie cutter something, right? And you can't adapt it for every jurisdiction, every agency. Have you heard from? The government or from other agencies asking about pride how they can replicate it in their jurisdictions sure well it is a sheriff's uh it's not sheriff specific it's in our our service areas but it is open to other parts of the county if somebody were to make a referral they're not going to say no uh, so they do have not every juvenile that comes into that program is within my service area some are from outside the service area so it is uh it is open, but it's it's also very limited on what resources they do have. As far as the funding, the funding has waned a little bit over the years. We had to kind of retool up the program. Um, healthcare agency is funding their clinician uh, as part of a, a value add, if you will, for them to bring that individual in because it's very important to have that clinician part of it. And uh, we pick up a lot of the costs in the back end. So it's not fully funded, just like the SMART program is no longer fully funded through the state. But I think you have to invest where you know you can be successful. It has been recognized. These two programs have been recognized as programs to be emulated. But without really that, that state or federal funding, it's very hard when we're competing for resources and where we're going to invest uh, to start up a program like this unless you have the capital to do that. Every dollar spent, and I'm preaching to the choir with my peers in, in public safety, but every dollar we spend as a dollar not available somewhere else. So you have to choose wisely where you're going to invest those very critical uh, programmatic dollars that go into these to these intervention models. Yeah, it's a shame we can't uh, jump in the bidding process with community-based organizations to fund a program like this. I, I do want to ask you, though, oftentimes we have these programs for kids uh, in trouble or even at the early stages. Is there an opportunity for struggling kids to get in before they offend? Uh, a lot of times uh, these programs say you, they're, you're only eligible after you've been referred to juvenile hall or, or some other process. No, and I, I mentioned before, and that's the beauty of this program is it's not um, a, a crime and then um, assessment and, and then program. You can be, uh, school administrators can refer kids to this program, adults can be made aware can, and bring kids to our program. So it doesn't have to manifest into criminal violation of law. Mm. Um, some do, but oftentimes they don't. It's the behavior we're looking at before it progresses into criminality that we're really focused on. It's really an off-ramping tool to get them out of the criminal justice system at a very early age, rather than let them continue making bad decisions that manifest into criminality. And anybody who knows juvenile intervention it's a really unfair environment when you have young adults who haven't a fully developed adult brain until 25, they become adults at 18. And uh, at 18 and one day old, they enter into a different system, which mm -hmm. is the adult criminal justice system for the same behaviors that they're exhibiting prior to becoming a legal adult. So every one of these strategies I think is well-placed 
I think the efforts uh, have had tremendous outcomes positively in intervening with the lives of others. And, and I really like the way we structured this to get people out of that environment early on. Yes, shifting gears a little bit, I want to be respectful of your time. I so appreciate you joining us. I want to ask you a question about leadership and training. And without, you know, pointing fingers at anyone, we oftentimes talk about the need for training. We develop training, we go to training, and then it hits the fan. And uh, whether we're relying on ICS or some other structure, um, Despite all our best intentions, where are agencies lacking in detecting these situations before the act? Do we need better training or do we need better leadership? I mean, it's difficult now in the public scrutiny where we're asked to stop and pull back and de-escalate. And then we're sometimes confronted by these situations that require immediate action. Uh, how do we how do we bridge that gap? That's a great question. And uh, again, I can only talk about what we've done here. And uh, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm being critical of others. A lot of these are resource driven. Uh, you have to be very intentional in where you put your efforts. Uh, we had a an active shooter environment on May 15th at the Geneva Presbyterian Church. It was the day after the incident that happened in Buffalo. Um, I can only tell you what we did that got us to where we are today. And it's not to be critical, Hope, hopefully it might create a roadmap. Um, and just to put this in perspective, uh, when we had our active shooter uh, happening, when it was dispatched over the radio to our cars, we uh, responded, donned our tools, our tactical gear that our patrol personnel have, including a ballistic vest for rifle rounds, long rifle platform, uh, formed up contact teams entered that place and we were in the place of worship where the shooting was occurring within four minutes. Uh, that includes the response to the on-prem and had the individual there in custody within five minutes from dispatch. And that was really, uh, I can't say it's any other way and I put it this way, it was two decades of training for five minutes of gameplay. We had made some changes in our response protocols going back to post Columbine, starting in 2000, 2001. Uh, we have a critical incident response team where our deputies, like many of us have, we have long rifle programs that uh, really came after the Hollywood shooting uh, back in the 90s and put them in a platform. And they're highly trained in the use of these. Uh, we helped design and implement MACTAC, which is multi-assault counterterrorism actions capability, how you get on premises to a building immediate action, rapid deployment, uh, the, 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 di uh, the diamond formation going in, locating. All of our sergeants are trained in ICS and how to use ICS. Everyone, our deputies are told from the day they start here, you're the first line of leadership within the community. All the tools we gave them, breaching tools, uh, IFACs, individual first aid kits and how to use them for tactical medics. Uh, that's all took place and has been building towards that for two decades. So when that day happened, it wasn't like it happened and it was foreign to us. We had been psychologically, mentally preparing for that day, both in physical training and mental awareness, so that when it did happen, they went right into muscle memory and responded accordingly. But uh, it's, it really comes down to what I call the three T's. The tools, the tools to do the job, training, training how to do, perform the job, and most importantly, trust, trusting them to fulfill the mission. 
And in all three of those environments, uh, they knocked it out of the park. And I'm very proud of the outcome we had locally. Looking at that from a national platform uh, is difficult. Some areas are very rural and may not have the resources. We have a regionalized policing uh, strategy here in Orange County. Uh, there's 34 cities. I patrol for 13 of the 34 cities, but any one of the other 21 cities, if we had an incident like mine and we had multi-agency response, we all do it exactly the same way. And that was very intentional how we designed these response protocols. The schools know what to expect when we show up if there's something happening on school grounds because we trained with them and told them this is what you need to do and what you should expect from us if we show up or when we show up. So we're all evaluating the circumstances exactly the same way. We're not learning it on the fly as we go. And I think most importantly, it takes the, the very intentional communication uh, with our partners, the other stakeholder groups. So when things happen, we're not introducing ourselves for the first time. We're on a first name basis before, first name basis before we show up. So we have developed all these relationships on school grounds, uh, in the community and other high profile areas so that we, uh, they all know what to expect. And that's been the design really that we've been working towards for the last two decades plus. And uh, we hope never to have to use those strategies but you can't wait and wing it if something does happen. You have to make sure you have all the tools in the toolbox and everybody's been adequately trained in how to respond to these incidents. Absolutely. Well, congratulations on your success and thanks for your leadership, uh, Sheriff Don Barnes. Thanks for taking time uh, to talk about the SMART program and PRIDE and uh, hope to read about uh, what you're doing there and, and Congratulations and hopes for further success for you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Hey, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed hearing uh, Sheriff Don Barnes and about the programs there in Orange County, California. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and hope to talk to you again real soon.